0: I'm Radio-Television Services General Manager Perry Metz, and this is WFIU's Profiles, a weekly program that introduces members of our community, as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, entertainers, to you, the FIU audience. Our guest today is Kurt Simic, President Emeritus of the Indiana University Foundation. Kurt retired last year after 20 years heading the foundation. Now, four times... In the last 10 years, the foundation was recognized for national excellence in overall performance. Kurt, what makes a great fundraiser? Well, I think there are a number of things that make a great fundraiser, and it's a little bit like
1: Casey Stingle. what makes a great manager. (laughs) It's if you have good players. And uh, in our case, it's we have wonderfully loyal alumni and friends of the institution. And the other thing is a consistency of what you're trying to do and communicating with Uh, your whole constituency, what the needs of the university are, but not just the needs, but the impact of what gift funds will do, what a difference they'll make. And we've had wonderful things to present to our constituencies, if you will. I think probably the one most notable was uh, endowed chairs and professorships that enabled the university to seek or retain the best in faculty that that were available. And uh, I think uh, about those years when we were in that campaign. And one of the factors that came into play there, I thought, was was really a visionary decision by Miles Brand. Miles uh, came to me and talked about needing to do something to upgrade the faculty salaries that were always 11th in the in the Big Ten. Mm-hmm. Every president that I ever knew said they were 11th in the Big Ten. But <laughs> mm-hmm. anyway, what could we do to make that work? And he asked me, what public institution has done well at at attracting endowed chairs and professorships, and I said the University of Minnesota. And the way they did that is they sold their land-grant lands and put the money into a permanent endowment fund, uh, and the income from that came into the university budget. But there was a clinker in it. The legislature would deduct from its appropriation uh-huh. the amount of the interest that was coming from that. So the, the head of the foundation there, a man by the name of Jerry Fisher, a longtime friend, said, what if we raised $500,000? Would you give us 500000 out of the permanent fund to make a million-dollar chair, which they did. And so they took off and did a great job. We did not have uh, land-grant right. lands. We didn't have capital that we could put into it. But Miles and I talked about uh, an income match. That is, if a million dollars came in and we paid 5%, it was $50,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Well, it happened at just about that time that uh, Governor O'Bannon put some money into the base budget. It was for excellence. No further earmarks. The state's economy was good, but he put money into the base budget. And Miles thought that that would be a place that, from which we could draw the 5% interest. And what happened then was uh, we went from the bottom of the Big Ten to the top of the Big Ten in terms of endowed faculty positions. Now, you know these are not fully endowed. Right. It doesn't mean they pay the whole salary, but it's money on top of the line that's already in the budget. And when you have people that are really outstanding, which we have many, many across the university, you want to hold on to them. But the second piece of it is when you try to attract somebody, the coin of the realm is to have an endowed chair or endowed professorship. And so I I guess what makes a good fundraiser is having a a really uh, compelling story to tell and uh, an ability to say to a potential donor, we can leverage your money.
0: But there was something else in that story. Uh, When he came to you and said that, how did you know that Minnesota was the school. Oh, we talk. (laughs) We talk. It's a small fraternity,
1: those of us who are fundraisers, and there's a great closeness among the vice presidents for development and foundation heads in the Big Ten, and we're constantly together. But frankly, I knew about that from my Berkeley days, too. Uh, We were aware of who in the public university sector was doing well. Uh, The biggest uh, dollar number that that was around at that time was a campaign that Ohio State was putting together. Well, Uh, Our objective at Berkeley was uh, to make good things happen, but Mm -hmm. also to exceed that number. And so we had a pretty good idea of who was doing well. And our chancellor at the time uh, wanted endowed professorships. In those days, all he wanted was $250,000. And and it was, again, uh, money on top of an existing position, but it was the title and it was the recognition of the individual by the institution as a person of great value that they wanted to express themselves in that way.
0: And it also allowed what came to be known as topping off. If yes. there were a regularly funded line, you could top it off with excellence that's, funds to attract an outstanding person.
1: Yeah, and that's the right word. I didn't – forgotten about that word, but you're right on that. But anyway, my view on uh, what makes good fundraisers is a, is a consistent program, knowing what you're doing, knowing that you have to identify the right things to do and sticking with them from from my perspective fundraising breaks down into into four little eyes my eyes are the first eye is identify who cares or who should care about the institution and what you're trying to do the second eye is simply to inform them of what your aspirations are and what your impact could be if you had more support the third eye is to involve the constituency in what you're trying to get done and then the fourth eye is investment So in succession, uh, that's what we do, the apostrophe S being stewardship.
0: Those four points sound to me more time-consuming than most people associate with fundraising. It is not – you're not describing a process of having an event, uh, a dinner, a basketball game – and and picking up a check. This is really an investment of years.
1: It is. It is. That's a good way to describe it. It is an investment, and it really takes some time. And sometimes you have presidents that see their tenure as being fairly short, and they want things to happen suddenly. Well, it's long-term relationships with the institution, and it doesn't always have to be with the president, but with the institution that cause you to know where to go to find those kinds of dollars. And if uh, obviously you go to people who have the resources and if there is no relationship, you seek to build a relationship to get them involved and engaged in the life of the institution as you can. And you end up uh, having a compelling case that they want to be associated with and We've
0: got example after example of that. You mentioned Berkeley, uh, where you uh, served as vice chancellor for development and president of the foundation. You also worked at Yale, Oregon, Alabama, and Tennessee in development. How were you able to raise funds successfully at each of those institutions when your process is one that takes some time to take root? Well, in most cases, there, there are relationships that already exist, their
1: relationships with the with the institutions that uh, that you don't have to start from scratch, uh, but you do have to put in place a process mm-hmm. by which you engage that uh, that individual a little bit more deeply. Tennessee has very loyal alumni, uh, as do uh, Alabama and Oregon, and certainly Berkeley. And so does Yale. Uh, Yale was the only private right. that I worked at, and to be perfectly honest with you, it was like going to graduate school and fundraising. Mm. Uh, they would have history on relationships that would go back 100 years, 200 years uh, with the institution. And as you piece together how you want to communicate with an individual or a family, you know what the predicate was. And so going into those institutions is not exactly going in cold, but uh, one of the things you have to learn is how to look for the clues and the direction from people who've been there, from records, from a variety of things. And one of the most important things that iu does is it it keeps an institutional history of relationships with with families and individuals and and that's really important any time a development officer goes out and sees somebody there's a contact report and that contact report said we we saw Perry Metz, mm-hmm. and he told us uh, of his interest in X, Y, or Z. And uh, he's a consistent giver to this, that, or the other. And it begins to it begins to form a picture from pieces that make it possible for uh, the university to approach a Perry Metz and say, Perry, would you be interested in X, Y, or Z? And and with a pretty educated guess as to what we take to the table. And and in most cases, um, we're close to right. And if we're not, an individual will say, you know, I did do that for a while, but now my interest has moved in this direction. Mm -hmm. What do you have going on that way? And when you're talking to loyal people, the what do you have going on in that area
0: really makes you feel good (laughs) because it means they're receptive. You describe a process at Yale, uh, which it might include 100 or 200 years of relationships. That brought to mind immediately uh, the presidency of Tom Ehrlich who came here with three degrees from Harvard and all of his higher education experience in private institutions where there might be as many as five generations of a family sitting in the first row at commencement. How were you able to convey the differences, uh, the the, uh, dissimilarities to him of a public institution where so many people may be the first in their families to go to college, uh, Others from towns where relatively few people are uh, have a higher education. Well, to
1: start with, I'd tell you that uh, one of the things that I really appreciated about Tom was that he respected what we were trying to do. And he understood without uh, too much tutelage that we knew what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And he was receptive and willing to listen and take direction about how we can go about this or go about that he and his wife ellen worked very hard at communicating with our constituency there was a there was just a simple and yet astoundingly effective team in the two of them. And they really worked at trying to get to know our constituency well. And we would guide them mm-hmm. in the direction of saying, well, these are the people that we think you should have at the, the Mac for an opera. These are the people that we think you should have at a football game. These are the people that you should have at your home. And these are the things that they've been interested in. And so you help guide them into a, a productive conversation because it's based on what the donor has told us already and I think one of the mistakes that we make from time to time is we have our institutional priorities and that's what we want to talk about only we have to listen and Tom and Ellen were good listeners they picked up clues from people very well and uh, if you listen people will tell you what their interests are and they will tell you what their interests are not in a gentle way and certainly to the president in a respectful way but they will tell you what's going on and so Tom being an astute listener Uh, as well as having Ellen, also Mm an astute astute listener. Uh, Really, uh, it wasn't hard to get him focused on what we were trying to do. It was under Tom that the conversation about endowed chairs and professorships began. Mm -hmm. It flowered under Miles, but it was really under Tom and Ellen. uh, And that was a response to him saying what the institution needed, and we having uh, on our board, the foundation board at the time, people who said, okay, if this is a problem, let's figure out how to achieve it kind of thing. So I think it was already in the man to be effective because, as I say, uh, he he was a good listener
0: and he respected what we were trying to get done and how we were trying to do it. When you talk about the importance of listening, in the 70s and 80s, it was not uncommon on campus to hear faculty uh, describe the foundation work as a bit of voodoo. That somehow (laughs) the foundation could make phone calls and visits and drum up money from misty, unidentified people who would give to whatever the foundation told them to give. How often did you find it to be the case that donors turned to you and said, where shall I give my money?
1: Not that often until you spent a lot of time with them, hmm. until they they realized that you could be trusted and that you would convey the institutional needs to them uh, without prism that, that uh, refracted the whole thing. I think it 's an advantage to being in a central development office versus the responsibility you have're if you 're if you're a development officer for the Kelly School or the College of Arts and Sciences. You have to stay focused on those if you 're if you're in those schools, but if you 're in the foundation you can you can be what I would call donor centered mm. You can listen and listen and listen and then move people in, in the direction uh, that you need to now over time, yes people. Have asked uh, what we thought was uh, a reasonable place to give their money, but it was all predicated on what the institutions said that they that they wanted. One of the problems with our relationship with the faculty when I came in the 80s, which was 88, Mm -hmm. was just what you described. The foundation is directing the fundraising agenda of the institution. One of the cardinal rules of fundraising is don't let the fundraisers determine what the fundraising objectives are. They have to be based on what the institution needs and says is its priorities and what seems to fit with the donors. An example would be if, uh, if I were sitting at, uh, at IUPUI. And, and the chancellor said to me, the most important thing that you can do is raise money for a parking garage. Mm-hmm. Well, a parking garage is, is necessary, but is it going to be attractive? And <laughs> if you take a parking garage out to the donor public, they'll pretty well tell you that, great, find the money someplace else, but we will do X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And so part of the conversation is what's possible and what's not possible, what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. And again, over time, If what you're asking uh, of the donor is consistent with the strategic plan of the campus or the institution, you can make that case and you can condition them.
0: Well, let me take the flip side of that. What happens when a donor says to you, I want to give to X or I want to give you a, a piece of property and it's something that the institution can't use or doesn't want? It seems like a very awkward position for a fundraiser to be in. (laughs) Well, it is,
1: Uh, and it depends on uh, how communicative they are with you and how communicative you've been with them over time. And uh, it's possible to say, you know, that's not something that we can handle. There's a, a huge piece of property in Indianapolis right now that's been in the news a little bit over the last year or two that we can't take we can't afford to take it. Mm -hmm. We can't afford to the upkeep on it and to, to make it as useful as this donor would like for it to be. So we've had to make sure as the decision points come along the along the consideration continuum, that they understand why this decision was made at this point and what the conditions are that would have to be fulfilled if we can take it going further. If you keep them involved in the conversation and, and they understand what you're talking about as you have to make decisions, they'll understand why you got to the point where you said, we can't use this. It might be better placed with so-and-so, and that's something we do as well. It might be better placed with another institution or a state agency or a national agency of some kind, but but it is an awkward kind of a conversation. I think one of the things that I worried a lot about, uh, Perry, when I came in was how to gain the trust and the confidence of the faculty. Uh, we had some rough spots uh, in the in the early 80s here, and uh, when I got here I found that there was a foundation relations committee of the faculty senate, the faculty council mm-hmm. here in Bloomington, Bloomington Faculty Council. Well, it was not a friendly group. <laughs> it was a watchdog group, and they wondered what was going on. And one of the things I learned at Tennessee was one of the sayings, which is uh, if somebody's not up on your program, they're probably down on it. <laughs> and and so one of the things we needed to do was to begin to communicate. And so um, when this faculty uh, committee asked to meet with me, or I met with them, uh, that we had a faculty member who had been uh, liaison from the foundation, to them was a man named Fred Smith, who was going back to the School of Education after a campaign. Remember. You remember, Fred. Uh, they said, well, who are we going to meet with? And I said, you're going to meet with me, and we'll meet as often as you like, and the agenda is your agenda. You bring any question you want to the table, we will answer the question, I will answer it in detail, and why we came to that conclusion may not be the answer that you want, but it'll be the answer. Well, over time, we really built a very nice uh, uh, trust relationship. And Alan Grimshaw, who was a professor in sociology, now retired and became one of my great friends. Mm-hmm. Well, Alan asked the hard questions. He always asked the hard questions, as he should have. And over time, we built a sense of trust that was it was uh, very beneficial when we went into the endowment campaign. You know, the faculty contributed $27 million in that campaign. And that could not have happened if there was not an understanding of of this money can be used judiciously to move the institution forward. And and I I give credit to Alan and I give credit to all who've served on that committee over time. It's just so encouraging that if you're open and uh, aggressively uh, seeking to get information out, that people eventually realize that you're telling uh, the story as it is and and, uh, whether it's the story they exactly want to hear or not they know it's, it's, a, it's a straight story.
0: Now, Kurt, one of the things we do with our Profiles guests is ask them to bring several pieces of music uh, to give us yet another insight into who they are and what they enjoy. Could you tell us a, a little bit about why you made your first selection uh, from actually a current IU faculty member?
1: Well, Joshua Bell is wonderful as far as I'm concerned, and uh, it's such an honor and thrill to be even on the campus any time to go to anything that's the music school but in this case it it also that piece ties to an opera too which again links back to the Jacob School of Music. I had never heard string music other than guitar and banjo before I came to IU seriously and to go there and to hear what was being done with violin and cello and bass and viola it, it was thrilling. So that's why Josh Bell is, uh, is this first piece.
0: talking with Kurt Simic, President Emeritus of the IU Foundation. And during the break, uh, Kurt, we talked about you having been a, a hyper in English major when you were an, an undergraduate at IU. What did you see for yourself uh, when you were finished with your education?
1: Well, I really thought I would be a high school basketball coach and an English teacher, and that goes back to two faculty members in high school that influenced me greatly. And as is true here at the university, every day we we were together at Henry Remax Memorial, and the, the thousands of students who he influenced over time is just inspiring. Remarkable. Well, on another level, in high school, that happens too, and uh, and people move you in directions without thinking they're moving you. And in my case, the English teacher uh, did her undergraduate degree here did a master's at the University of Chicago, and did a doctorate at Columbia. And she came back to Coutts, Indiana, to teach English. Wow. She was the, uh, the town doctor's daughter, and she pushed me. She pushed me all the time. And, and uh, she said, you're not going to get an A for doing the same work everybody else does. You're going to get an A by doing that, plus this, plus this, plus this. And here's a fundraising story that I love to tell. I was vice chancellor at Berkeley, and she was retiring so I called the principal of my high school, and, uh, who happened to have been a student teacher when I was there, 30 years or whatever it was before. And I said, would it be okay if we raised a little money in Miss Dittmer's name and maybe we could have a scholarship? He said, that'd be fine. He said, actually, there's, a, there's some interest in memorial funds here right now. Well, I go back every year to present a scholarship in my brother's name who died some years ago. Mm-hmm. That town, which is now graduating forty nine kids in the classes as opposed to twenty one when I was there, has six hundred and fifty thousand dollars of endowed wow. scholarships. Wow It is the most wonderful thing, and uh, not that it started with this idea for miss Dittmer, but uh, but she was one that influenced me enough that I really wanted to make that happen and the other one was the basketball coach, and he died too young after running in a half marathon or something, and uh, we did the same thing, and then a classmate, and then families got involved, in it and it was really fun. So those two teachers, uh, Jane Dittmer and Bob Gray, were the two that uh, influenced me a lot, and I thought, well, I could teach and, and make a contribution that way, and as I got here, I thought, hmm, if I did a master's, I might be able to teach in a community college mm-hmm. somewhere, but then I I, I, I got this wonderful fork in the road presented to me uh, by Bill Armstrong, and after I finished my senior year, he offered me a job to direct the Student Foundation, and that started me down the road to learning fundraising.
0: It was a, a circuitous path, really, from uh, the Student Foundation at that moment as you finished your undergraduate career, and then across um, many other, half a dozen other higher education institutions. 20 years ago, you were, uh, 21 now, you were vice chancellor for development at Berkeley. And while you were there, you oversaw the largest fundraising campaign ever for a public university at that time. How much was that for? Well, the goal was
1: $350 million at the time. And uh, I had come down from the University of Oregon where I was vice president for university relations and development. And I said to the chancellor uh, Who wanted somebody to mount a campaign? Berkeley had never had a campaign. You know, the campaign we had for Indiana and the Sesquicentennial was only the second public university campaign ever. The other was a Michigan campaign, and so they'd never had one. And I'd been through a few of them, and so we organized it. But I said to the chancellor, "I'll be here through the whole campaign unless Indiana comes open. Because if the job comes open, that's my dream is to uh, is to go back to IU and." do what I do for, for Indiana. Well, uh, I got my good friend Kent Dove to join me there. And as you know, Kent stayed with me off and on for many times, and he's he's one of the brightest people in the country relative to the process of fundraising. He understands it fully, and he knows exactly what he's doing, and the two of us in combination were pretty good. I like the people side. He likes the process side. Well, he
0: describes you as Mr. Outside and (laughs) himself as Mr. Inside. Well,
1: I'll let him do that because he was certainly doing the job inside. Well, let me go back. Let me say that I was sitting in my office at the University of Oregon, and the phone rang, and it was President Ryan. And uh, John said, uh, uh, I want you to know that Bill Armstrong is retiring. And I thought, oh, he's going to ask me to come back. And <laughs> the next breath, he said, but I'm not going to ask you to come back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sounds just like
1: you. He said, he said, whoever follows Bill will have a hard time because Bill will have a hard time letting go. So I'm going to put George Pinnell, then executive vice president of the university, in that slot for a few years, and, and then we'll see. And I said, well that's fine because uh, I'll take the Berkeley job because that was going on at the same time. Well, I'm so glad I went to Berkeley. It Mm -hmm. was such a great experience. Talk about an institution that plays on the world stage like we do in spots all over, but they play on the world stage all the time, and it was such fun to put that campaign together. But in my fourth year, the message came back that George was ready to step down and that Indiana would be looking. And so I thought, well, how am I going to get my name before the group and it turned out that jerry tardy who was i think acting vice president for university relations had been in the alumni association Mm -hmm. at that time tom earlish asked him uh, where do we go and he said i know exactly where to go we go to berkeley because i know kurt wants to come back to indiana if we can if we can make it attractive for him and so tom invited me uh, to come in for an interview after looking at my paperwork uh I came back to the campus, uh, and interestingly enough, uh, Yo-Yo Ma was performing here, and he was staying at Bryan House when I arrived on the wrong time schedule. <laughs> I was an hour early when I arrived, and so Yo-Yo Ma was there prior to a uh, a concert that he was doing, so I got to meet Yo-Yo Ma, too, so it, wow. was, it was great fun, and, and then uh, Tom did invite me to come back and uh, Perry, you know, you have dreams sometimes, and and sometimes they don't come true as
0: you hoped they would. This one came true. But I still – I have to wonder. There you are at Berkeley. The campaign is one of the first of its kind for a public institution. Hundreds of millions of dollars are coming in. The university must have been very pleased. You were at the top of your game having worked successfully at half a dozen institutions You were at one of the great universities of the world. Why were you still so sure after all those years away that you wanted to come back here?
1: I think, Perry, it's something we try to build on every day. Let's figure out how we can make the student experience here as rich as we possibly can. And it it manifests itself in so many ways. When a faculty member says to me, what can I do to help you in fundraising and development? My answer is, Do the very best job you can possibly do in the classroom. Be sensitive to what the students' needs are. Challenge them, but move them forward. And that'll be the basis of how they feel about the institution. Then you add to that this wonderful environment that we have. You, You add to that being a part of the Big Ten. You add to that... Uh, the tr- I think the tremendous loyalty that, uh, that Hoosiers, whether they're transplants from New York or they're from Coutts, from Indiana, have, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I have a new definition of Hoosier, by the way. What is it? My definition is, first, it's not an icon or a mascot. It's a way of life. And the first aspect of the way of life of being a Hoosier is you know how to work. And you don't expect things to be handed to you. You you give a full day's work for a full day's pay, whatever it is. The second thing is there's a civility about Hoosiers, and there's a respect for everybody, individual to individual, and that's a that's a wonderful trait. And then the third uh, Hoosier trait, this is my definition mm-hmm. again, <laughs> is that uh, when somebody needs a hand, you give it. You find a way to be helpful. You don't necessarily have to be asked, and the people don't have to be your family or your next door neighbor. They can be wherever they might be. But Hoosiers are are the kind of people that step up. But that's my definition of Hoosier. And so uh, coming back here, all those things come together. Plus, my family was here. Uh, my parents were still alive, mm. and I really wanted to be here before they did. And Dr. Wells was still around. Yeah. And to get a chance to be around him, as I was when I started my career in the foundation, was a piece of it as well. So all those things roll together, uh, I guess it it comes down to loyalty. And it's one of the reasons that uh, reaching out to students as undergraduates, which you've always done, you were a student body president, you know the commitments to things. The Union Board is celebrating its 100th anniversary. The Student Athletic Board is a big thing. Fraternities and sororities are a big thing. The Student Foundation, all of these things that that enrich students' life experiences while they're here, help build that loyalty. And uh, it's, it's not a surprise that half the foundation board members, all of them were active as undergraduates mm-hmm. in one way or another, but half of them were either members of the student foundation or were bike riders. Mm. And it's because the whole idea of the student program, as is the Student Alumni Association, is to say, well, they're here. This is your place. Take ownership. Be a stakeholder. And if you are, you'll continue to be loyal in the future when when the university comes knocking and says to you, we need your support, we need your son or daughter to come to our school, we need your help in opening a door to whatever it might be, and and, and it works. You
0: give a lovely uh, definition of a Hoosier. I don't think I've ever heard it put quite that way before, but it seems to me reminiscent of the things that Herman Wells did as president and as chancellor, what many faculty cited for why they came here for a year or two and stayed 40, mm-hmm. uh, why so many staff retire with uh, 30, 35, even 45 years of service. Uh, there's a, a certain groundedness uh, in the people you describe. And sometimes that's uh, uh, hard to convey when people ask, what is it that is the essence of your institution or what makes you different from Mm -hmm. every other place?
1: Well, I think there is a groundedness. And when somebody calls me, I had a call today from Florida about a student who wants to come here to school. And uh, one of the questions is, uh, was, can she come and see the campus? And, of course, as you know, once we get them on the <laughs> campus, it really sells itself. And we're back to our good mutual friend Terry Claypacks and the magnificent job that he, following the Wells tradition, did in making all of our campuses just wonderful uh, uh, environments. Uh, Each in their teaching. own way. They're very different. They all make a difference, and they, they all look different except— the one thing that's that's consistent about them is uh, quality. Uh, one of the things that I would worry about going forward is that we don't get in such a situation for needs of facilities that we start building junk. Uh, we need to build for 100 years. And uh, we're sitting in the middle of one of the most magnificent campuses. I love the Berkeley campus, but once you got out to the edges, you got to stuff that was built just expeditiously. You can look over the Golden Gate Bridge, and you can look from the Campanile, but it doesn't have the beauty on a campus that we have and of course we have the beautiful hills of southern indiana and the space to place a, a school of education on a piece of ground that is not crowded in by another building so close that you can reach across and touch the touch the other building we have again we're back to wells mm. and Brian in acquiring property and doing things in the right way across the state every one of our campuses has the as the grounds to make it uh, a beautiful spot if if, uh, the buildings are done in harmony. Each has been
0: able to develop contiguously Mm -hmm. instead of uh, adding Mm -hmm. a north campus Mm -hmm. or a south campus. Mm -hmm. Let's pause uh, for your second selection uh, by Yo-Yo Ma, who was uh, here that fateful day when you arrived early for your interview. We're back with Kurt Simic, President Emeritus of the IU Foundation. Production support for
2: Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400
0: or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. Kurt, we talked a little bit about when you came back here from Berkeley and you looked over the foundation and its uh, uh, makeup and you, one of the things that many people credited you for was expanding the foundation board to include more women and minorities at that time. Now, that was already the late 80s. Why hadn't it happened naturally? You know, I don't know. There's,
1: there's just so much loyalty among Hoosiers that uh, they would like to have their friends on the board. <laughs> and if the board is all white males, then that's what you get uh, yeah. with nominations and the like. But what I saw was two women on a board at that time that was, I don't know, 38 or so. And I thought, well, this this doesn't make sense to me. And I didn't see anybody of color. Mm-hmm. And so I asked the question, uh, where are the women and where are the people of color? And what I got back was we didn't know our our women constituents well enough to say this is a nominee that we want. And uh, we, we simply didn't know enough women. And, and you can't just put somebody on a board like that as a token. Mm-hmm. They have to be able to pull their own weight. That means they have to be able to give money. They have to be able to open doors to people who can give money. And they have to make a contribution to the management of the operation. So tokenism doesn't work and shouldn't work. And so – since Did you we call that one's wealth, wisdom, and work? <laughs> that would be uh-huh. one. That's a good way. That, uh, that's exactly what we want. So not knowing them, uh, I went to two people, Peg Brand and Gail Cook, and I said, I have an idea. Uh, see if you think I'm crazy. Why don't we bring together 100 women of achievement who are Indiana alums, but not necessarily all Indiana alums, and let's bring them to the campus. And what was born out of that was the colloquium. That was Peg's word. Mm -hmm. And she and Gail together chaired the thing, and we began to identify people in various walks of life who we didn't have real contact with and decided that what we'd like to do is invite them to the the campus. And while they were here, uh, get to know them and have them get to know us. And more equally important to us getting to know them was them getting to know the university and feeling a, a, a connection again. And so the first colloquium was, I don't know, 12 or 15 years ago, something like that. And we had the woman who was uh, head of the United Nations delegation at the time, who had just come back from Jean Bosnia. Kirk Jean Kirkpatrick. Jean She was the uh, keynote speaker on Friday noon. There were 100 women in the room, and we made it a little bit exclusive, so it was nice to be included in the invitation list, and we cut it off at 100. Well, she gave a great talk and put us in the world perspective. And then the rest of the day, uh, the women spent time with faculty members and students through the dinner hours and all the rest. And and if there were men around, they were not included. They were (laughs) excluded. And then all day Saturday. And then we closed it with Beverly Sills. And Beverly Sills, you'll recall, had a, a son who was autistic and another child who was deaf. And she talked not about her work with the Metropolitan Opera, but about her work in not-for-profits to to see if they could achieve some some uh, solutions to some of those those issues. Well, it was a it was just a sensation. It was such a good experience. So it's been going on. Well, the result was we knew who the yes. women were, and we knew when it was time to uh, to appoint somebody to the board that we had a, a list of people that we could go to who could fulfill. Uh, whatever the objectives of the, of the foundation and the needs of the university were, but also women who would uh, who would enjoy being a part of the board. And now the board is, I don't know, there are probably 11, 12, 14 women on the board now, which is good. We did less expanding of the board than we did changing it just a little bit. What we did is we said, okay, at age 72, you have to go emeritus. Mm-hmm. And because there had been people around who had been on the board for many years, including Ed Kelly, for example, right. uh, uh, it gave us a spot. And so when Ed became emeritus, it didn't mean he stopped coming. Danny Danielson's going to be 90 years old, and he still comes, and he's one of our hardest workers. And he comes, and he serves on the committee. So we wanted to put our arms around them and keep them engaged, because one day when Tom Ehrlich and I were presenting the case for for term limitations, one of the board members from New York, uh, Neil Gilliatt said, "Now." Tell me why you're going to kick me off the board just as I'm making my estate plans.
0: <laughs> I thought, well, that's eloquent. Pretty good, pretty good reasoning. I should mention Mr. Kelly was the one who endowed the Kelly School of right. Business. And Mr. Danielson was, uh, for 20-plus years, the president of the Board of Trustees of IU. Just great,
1: great uh, devoted uh, servants of the university and, in that, servants of the faculty, servants of the student body, servants of the state of Indiana. Just great people. But it still didn't make sense. Also, when I came back, we had the Neil Marshall Center as one of the things to raise funds for, and and, uh, I didn't see any uh, committee structure at all. That made any sense. So I went to Bill Mays and I went to Moses Gray. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bill's younger than I am, but Moses and I were in school together at the time. And I said, We really need to put together a group that can help us raise money for the Neil Marshall Black Cultural Center. And they both agreed to it, although Moses had a price. And Moses' price was, uh, If I do this and I help you put together, I'd like for you to make sure that a black member of the faculty gets one of those endowed chairs or professorships. Mm. And I thought, by golly, that's a small price, and we ought to be doing it anyway. But I went to Ken Gross-Lewis. And I said, Ken, here's what I'm trying to get done. Here's who I'm trying to recruit. What do you think of that? He said, splendid, splendid. And the very next one, a faculty member in the law school was given one of the endowed uh, professorships. I don't think we had a chair, but we had a professorship. Mm-hmm. And from then on, we were able to communicate more fully with uh, with the constituents that was of color. And I think now there are, I don't know, seven, eight, nine Uh, people of color on that board. And uh, again, uh, that's who we
0: are. Kurt, now that you're a year into retirement, what do you see ahead for Indiana? Well, the
1: core of it is where we started this conversation. When you have the loyalty that the university has among its many constituents, and based on on real service, uh, whether we're talking about the world, the nation, the state, or each individual, uh, I think the future is very bright. Uh, It's difficult right now because the economy is so tough, and my successor, Gene Temple, has inherited a tough time to come on board, but he is superb. His leadership of the Center on Philanthropy, I thought, made him just the most excellent of choices. And in a lot of ways, it parallels what John Ryan did for me. He built a five-year buffer with George (laughs) Pinnell until the next long-term person came in. And really, uh, the foundation needs to change. It needs a a different set of eyes. The things that I did reflect what I thought was the right thing. But if somebody comes in with with better ideas, they should be adopted. And I think Gene has wonderful ideas and will do fine. I think the the field of development uh, is more challenging. Hundreds of thousands of Uh, not-for-profit corporations are added every year. And uh, WFIU certainly feels the pinch of that because it happens right here in our own community. So people are going to have to make more choices. Now, I hope for IU that means that more people who have been on the sidelines, as far as giving is concerned, will get into the game, will feel the compelling logic for being supportive and we get, uh, for the Bloomington campus, about 18% of our alumni give, which is a very respectable number at a public institution. But if uh, their energies and their resources are siphoned off by other things in their community, all good, all good, including our own community, uh, we hope that we can we can find the the compelling logic that will cause other people to say, you know, I really need to get into the game. And we are so blessed in this country to have this ethic of philanthropy. Nobody else in the world has it. And uh, we won't succeed as a nation in so many ways if we depend only on government and we depend only on what business can do. We really need that third leg, and that third leg is philanthropy.
0: Kurt, we've been talking about things you were able to initiate. Uh, Those who market a university uh, from time to time find themselves – perhaps unwillingly, at the center of a controversy. And that has to have some impact on what you do. The The example I think of was the time surrounding Bob Knight's firing. Mm-hmm. How did that affect fundraising, and what kind of feedback did you get from donors?
1: Well, we were getting a lot of feedback before the firing, uh, and it was uh, on both sides. Some, some were very angry uh, that they felt that Bob uh, did not represent the institution well. Um, all would admit that uh, we won games, the kids graduated, and we didn't cheat. And most institutions, by the way, including this one, would be very happy to have that all the time. Uh, but but they just felt that he was too volatile, and, and, it, and it, it embarrassed some of our, our wealthiest donors. Now, it never disaffected them because major gift fundraising is over a long period of time. And while somebody might withdraw their annual support once in a while over something like that, the long-term relationships went out. Mm-hmm. And in the case of uh, when the firing occurred, there was a withholding of some support, particularly for athletics, uh, and and that was that was uh, a difficult period of time, but uh, the fundraisers or the athletic department didn't fire Bob Knight, right. and so we have to carry on uh, and continue to build those kinds of relationships. But we lost some ground in the annual fund, particularly for the varsity club. But that was recovered really pretty quickly uh, as we moved forward. But as you know, we had our more of our downs than our ups. Uh, in basketball after that happened. Uh, Mike Davis got us to the national final game, and that was a great thing. But then we had some difficulty as time went on. And, and over time, that has and is an open wound with a lot of our alumni. The the relationship, the way Bob was let go, not that he was let go as much as the way he was let go by, by right-minded and, and uh, balanced people. They were upset with the way he was let go. They thought it was abrupt, and there are a lot of words to describe it. But they felt that uh, it could have been done with more respect for what he had achieved over time. And I'd like to see that wound healed. And I'm really glad that Fred Glass and the and the Athletic Department Committee have reached out to Bob and said, we want you in the Hall of Fame, uh, whether he'll show up to accept it. I view it as the university having taken the, the high road. Mm-hmm. And then it's up to Bob now to decide whether he wants to do it. I hope he will because I think it'll heal some things.
0: You describe yourself... Uh before the firing, receiving uh, comments from people who were angry about how he represented the institution, after the firing, getting uh, comments from people angry at the way he was treated, presumably, you agreed with one or the other. How did you reconcile your own views during those two very different time periods? Well, I'm going to be a diplomat
1: here. I think wherever we are, we have to, we have to support the institution. Uh, and while we may not agree with what happens behind closed doors, we should, we should fight it out. But when the door is open, we have to support the institution. Our president was Miles Brand at the time, and this is a decision he came to. Now, how it played out is, is, is left for a lot of things. But uh, I think we have to say, okay, it's happened. Now let's go forward. Uh, it could have happened better, but it didn't. And so here we are, so let's move forward and let's not spend all our time worrying about this volatile moment in our history and talk about what we're going to do uh, going forward. And... uh, by and large with our major donors it was it was never an issue Mm. i mean it was an issue because everybody in the world knew about it but in terms of of getting major gifts from people like barbara jacobs for example it it didn't affect that at all and it didn't affect jesse cox and it didn't affect some of these other major donors that we've had the simon family but everybody would like for it to have gone more smoothly
0: and would like for it to be healed over time so um We should mention that Barbara Jacobs was the woman who endowed the Jacobs School of Music. Jesse Cox gave the Cox Scholars to the School of Business.
1: Well, the Cox Scholars are across the board, and they're they're two-thirds for the Bloomington campus and one-third for IUPUI, and that constitutes a $30 million uh, endowment for for IUPUI. 33, I guess, is what it really is. So they're major things. But Jesse read the sports pages, Mm -hmm. and I've worked with him for 20 years, and he was very cognizant of what was going on. But it didn't deter him from what he thought his dream was. And his dream was to make it possible for gifted students from the state of Indiana to be able to afford to come school here. And, uh, and of course, Barbara was a, was just fantastic in her support
0: of the uh, School of Music. This brings up uh, uh, the question that faces every uh, marketer of a university. And uh, as chief development officer, you you did market the institution, that meant carrying information out to friends and alumni, but also bringing back information that you picked up. How much influence should the foundation have in advising the university on major issues?
1: Well, I think to ignore the constituency out there is, is uh, dangerous. It uh, doesn't mean necessarily you have to follow everything that you that you pick up, but you certainly have to bring back the information as you as you describe it, so that the president knows what's going on, and then it's a question of volume, both in noise and in numbers uh, of of what he or she judges uh, the impact of whatever this, the controversy is might be. So I came back to Tom a lot. I came back to Miles a lot. I came back to Adam a lot. And uh, even with Michael in a brief period that I've been in place while well, he was in place, uh, I'd, I'd bring back the information. I don't think it's up to us, the fundraisers, again, to determine what's fundraising or to determine what the outcomes of whatever the controversies are. But we do need to be informed. And we do need to be able to say this is the decision and this is why the decision was made. Not just this is the decision, like it or or lump it, uh, Mm -hmm. but why it was made, what the logic was behind it, uh, what the pressures were. And uh, probably that story is never completely told on a a major controversy kind of thing. But enough of the information can be gotten back to people that our alumni who are bright and very fair-minded will say, okay, I may not agree, but I see – how we came down and why we came
0: down in that way. We've been speaking today with Kurt Simic, the president emeritus of the Indiana University Foundation. Kurt, we're going to close the program with your final selection. If you would uh, say a word about how you happened on this piece from the Beaux Arts Trio.
1: Oh, it's a Mendelssohn piece, which I love, uh, and it turns out that the day I retired and they had the event in the in the Mac. The trio came back from Boston to play this, played the piece, and then got on an airplane to go play a concert in Huntsville, Alabama, and it just touched me. But then at Henry Remax memorial service, three students played parts of it again, and I thought, this is the perfect piece. It just talks about great quality, the enduring quality of, of, of music and the enduring quality of our university.
2: The program you have just heard was recorded in October of 2009. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.